John 1, starting in verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Sends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege of being gathered together in your name. We thank you for the blessing of your gospel. We thank you for the blessing of having sent your son to bear the sin of the world. We pray, Lord, that now as your word is opened, that you would bless the preaching of your word. Lord, may you use it unto the conversion of sinners and to the edification of your people. Lord, we pray that by your spirit we would receive it uh, for what it truly is, not the word of man, but the word of God. Lord, may it be your truth that is spoken and nothing else. Lord, grant me grace to preach in a way that will glorify you and bless your people. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we pick up our series again in John, and we are continuing in the first chapter. Now, to this point, we have completed John's prologue, uh, that glorious introduction, and we have been introduced in the process to another man named John, and that is John the Baptist. Uh, at this point, John had already developed a large following in the wilderness, and he had made it clear, though, to those who came to ask him that he was not the Messiah. But rather, he says, his life's mission, the purpose of his ministry, was not to draw attention to himself, but was to point to another. A man, John said, whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. We pick up this morning with John's public testimony about who this man truly is. Let's look together. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. So here now, John identifies Jesus as the one whom he had been sent to proclaim. Remember, John had declared that his own ministry was that of a voice calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. After me is coming one who ranks before me because he was before me. And so here now, John identifies this person. He sees Jesus coming toward him and he declares, this is the man of whom I spoke. This is the one who ranks before me because he was before me. 
And again, we remember Jesus is no ordinary man. Uh, He was before John in the sense that he was before everyone. For as we've seen in the prologue, Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. The word, the eternal logos, God the Son, who has eternally existed together with the Father and the Spirit. This pre-existent word of God has now taken on flesh. He has taken a human body, taken a human nature to himself, and has tabernacled among his people. This is the man. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John identifies Jesus now as being the Lamb of God, a phrase that is rich in Old Testament significance. Now, the person familiar with the scriptures hearing that phrase might think of the daily sacrifice, the offering of a lamb, sacrificed to God every morning and every evening. They might think of the ram that was caught by its horns in the thicket, the lamb which God provided for Abraham to sacrifice as a substitute in place of Isaac. They might think of the Passover lamb, the lamb whose blood was shed and spread over them so that their children would be spared from the plague of death. To hear the lamb who takes away the sin of the world might bring to mind the scapegoat, the animal which symbolically bore the sins of the people and then was released into the wilderness to remove their sins far from them, making expiation. Big word there, removing sins to make expiation. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world might bring to mind Isaiah 53, the suffering servant of God, the one who would be pierced for the transgressions of his people, crushed for their iniquities. For in Isaiah 53, it says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. That servant in Isaiah 53 was one prophesied to bear the iniquity of his people. He was the one whose soul would make an offering for guilt. So whatever John the Baptist had in mind and whatever would have come to mind for someone hearing these words, they give an amazing preview of the mission which Christ came to fulfill. For he is the Lamb of God. All of these Old Testament types and shadows prefigured in some way what Christ came to do. He came to deal with sin. He came to remove it far from his people, making expiation. He came to bear sin and remove it like the scapegoat into the wilderness. He came to substitute himself 
to die in the place of his people like the ram that was sacrificed instead of Isaac. He came as the unblemished Passover lamb to shed his blood so that his people would be spared from judgment. He came to be the suffering servant who would bear the sin of many and make transgression for the intercessors. Isaiah 53, 12. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now this verse brings up an interesting question as it is one of the verses commonly cited by Arminians in opposition to the Reformed view of particular redemption, or what we will sometimes call limited atonement. Now, I won't go into a full uh, explanation of all of these terms and their meanings here. Uh, we'll, we will cover this topic with greater depth when we come to John 17. But to briefly introduce you to this debate, uh, it comes down to the question of what Christ accomplished in the atonement, and then for whom the atonement was made. So firstly, the Arminian perspective says that Christ's atonement makes salvation possible, and that this atonement was therefore made for every single individual without exception. Now the Reformed or Calvinistic perspective, the one that we would hold, says that Christ's atonement does not merely make salvation possible, but it actually secures the salvation of all those for whom it was made. Christ's atonement was therefore offered on behalf of the elect, those whom God had chosen for salvation from before the foundation of the world. Now the Reformed position argues that there is harmony between the persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, in our salvation. So we can say our salvation is Trinitarian. The Father has elected a people, right, chosen a people in Christ from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. Christ then came to redeem this elect people, to provide their righteousness through his life, to pay their debt through his death, and the Spirit of God then applies the benefits of Christ's work of redemption to those whom the Father has elected and the Son has purchased. The Spirit then indwells them, sanctifies them, and preserves them. So to bring this back to our text, uh, the Arminian says that the statement, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, is a clear statement that Jesus therefore died for every individual without exception. Right, the world, they argue, uh, always means, or at least always means in John, uh, all human beings, right? every single person without exception. Now the problem, or the first problem with this view is that the word world gets used in a variety of different ways in John. It does not always mean every individual who has ever lived. For example, after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees were talking about how they were now going to do some damage control. Right? They were concerned with the following that Jesus had gained at this point. John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world 
has gone after him. The world has gone after him. Uh, Same word used in John 1. The world had gone after him. Now, did that mean that every single individual, without exception, was now following Jesus? Well, clearly not. The Pharisees were not following Jesus. So in that context, world simply meant a large number of people in and around Jerusalem. Another example, John 17. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I am praying for them, speaking of his disciples. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And so here, in Jesus' usage, the world refers specifically to the non-elect, or perhaps more generally to the fallen system of unbelief, right? The world representing the ordered system of rebellion to God. What it very clearly can't mean in this text is every individual without exception. So it's not as simple as saying that the world always means every individual without exception. As we've seen, you need to look at each passage in context in order to determine how a word is being used. Now, in this case, to return to John 1.29, it cannot mean every individual without exception, for if it did, we would have to be universalists. As James White writes, if the sins of all people were truly taken away, then those sins would be gone. God could not hold them against anyone, close quote. Everyone would then be saved. For we see in scripture that the removal of sins, having your sins removed from you, does not simply make forgiveness possible, but it accomplishes forgiveness. Blessed is the man whom the Lord will not hold his sins against him. And so Christ's death does not merely make a person savable, it actually secures their salvation. As John writes in another book, which we read this morning, Revelation 5 verse 9, the song of the saints sung to the Lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, For you were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now that word ransomed is the Greek word agorazo, and it quite literally means to purchase or to buy in the marketplace. The HELPS word study says that in salvation contexts, agorazo is not redeeming, it's not about buying back, but rather it focuses on how the believer now belongs to the Lord as his unique possession, close quote. So the lamb who was slain has purchased for God. He has purchased for God a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Notice there the focus of the extent on what was purchased. It was not merely the possibility of salvation that was purchased. No. Christ purchased a particular people 
from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So what has the work of Christ accomplished for those whom he has purchased with his blood? Those who have been purchased by Christ are granted the gift of faith. They have their sins forgiven. They receive Christ's righteousness. They are indwelt by his spirit who will then cause them to grow in holiness and preserve them to the end. Christ's death does not simply make salvation possible for an unknown mass of humanity who may or may not accept it. It is not a hypothetical atonement. Rather, he has specifically purchased a particular people, a multitude that no one can number greater than the stars in the sky or the grains of sand in the seashore. They were bought by his blood. Their salvation has been secured. And so Paul can say this in Romans 8, 31 to 34, and you can turn with me there. Romans 8, verses 31 to 34, Paul can therefore say, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. Now, key question. Who is the us in these verses? Verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Now follow the logic and look with me at verse 32. Paul says that if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, Paul then asks a rhetorical question, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So did you follow that? Paul makes an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God did such a big thing by giving his son for you, he asks rhetorically, how will he not also do this comparatively smaller thing by granting you all things? Right? Anytime we find a rhetorical statement in scripture like this, we can turn it into a statement. Paul is saying, if Christ died for you, if God gave his son for you, it is certain that God will also give you all things. So catch the implication. Christ's death does more than just create a possibility. If Christ died for you, God will grant you all things. Those for whom Christ died, he has purchased with his blood. 
He has secured their salvation. So we can ask, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here's a question. Will Christ intercede on behalf of all those for whom he died? Will he plead the acceptance of his atonement before God on behalf of all those for whom he has made that atonement? Of course he will. Next question. Will Christ's intercession be successful? Will God turn away the presence of his son? Will Christ fail as mediator? No. Perish the thought. Christ's atonement and intercession will not fail. Christ will not fail as mediator. Those for whom he died will be granted all things. And so Christ did not die to simply make salvation possible. He died to purchase a people for himself. He died to secure the salvation of those his father had given to him. And so we can sing. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So if the world does not mean every last individual without exception, then what does it mean? Well, it means Christ is the savior of the world in the sense that he came to redeem this whole fallen creation. He is the sin bearer, the sin remover, not only for the Jews, but for the world. For Gentiles, pagans, people from every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation, for the world. Christ is the Savior of the world. Now, the Cambridge Bible Commentary observes that the language of Isaiah 53, verse 8, could have given the impression that the Messiah was coming only to bear the sins of Israel. As it says in verse 8 of Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And so the Jew of Jesus' day might expect the statement to be, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of Israel, who takes away the sin of the Jews. But this statement from John clarifies that he came to be stricken for the transgressions of all peoples. Jesus is not only the Jewish Messiah. He is the second Adam. 
the head of a new humanity, stricken not only for the transgression of that people, but of all peoples, all people groups. He did not come to bear only the sin of the Jews, but of the world, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It is for this reason that we must proclaim the gospel equally to all. For there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. It is not to be limited to any particular ethnicity, but Christ has commissioned his followers to make disciples of all nations. Similarly, we do not ever need to speculate about whether someone is elect. We need no proof of the Spirit's movement in them before we proclaim the gospel. We simply proclaim the truth and the command of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He died, rose again, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and now commands all men everywhere to repent. Turn to him in faith and trust the promise that all who do so will find him to be a perfect Savior. Trust the promise that to all who do receive him, who believe in his name, he will grant the right to become children of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John continues, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Now as John had previously declared that there was one coming after him whose sandals he was not worthy to untie, so now John identifies this man. Verse 29 begins by saying, the next day, and so this likely occurred the day after John had answered the messengers from the Pharisees. So the next day, John sees Jesus coming towards him and declares, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the man I was telling you about. This is the man who ranks before me because he was before me. The purpose of my ministry, the reason that I am baptizing with water, is that I might bear witness to you about this man. John's ministry, as we saw last week, going forth in the spirit and power of Elijah, was to be the voice in the wilderness crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare yourselves, for God is about to move. And now John comes to the culmination point of his ministry. Everything he's done, he declares, has been for this purpose, to point to this man so that he might be revealed to Israel. This is the man. Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 32. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John says that he had been told by God, told by the one who sent him to baptize, that the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is the one that you have come to make known. And so John says, this is what confirmed it for me. This is what confirmed the identity of the Messiah. I myself didn't know him, but I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. And so the sign that God had arranged with John beforehand came to pass. And that was the Spirit descended on Jesus and remained on him. And this, of course, took place at Jesus' baptism. Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so John and those present saw the Spirit descend and land on Jesus in the form of a dove, even as they heard the Father speak from heaven, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so John says that seeing the Spirit descend on him and stay on him was the sign that God had arranged beforehand to identify the man that that John was sent to proclaim. The Spirit descended on him and remained on him. And we find that this too was a fulfillment of prophecy. As there were a number of places in the Old Testament that God had said the Messiah would have the Spirit resting upon him. Isaiah 11 verse 1 beautiful messianic text says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Or Isaiah 42, 1-4 a favorite text of the Puritans. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or made it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Or Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has appointed me to bring good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, and to comfort all who mourn. As you may remember, this was the very text that Jesus read in the synagogue to begin his ministry. And after he had read this, and every eye was fixed upon him, he then declared, Luke 4.21, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus of Nazareth is the anointed one, the Messiah. He was anointed by the Spirit of God to bring good news, to bind up, to heal the brokenhearted. He came to proclaim freedom, to bring forth justice to the nations and to comfort all who mourn. He is the one who came to proclaim God's favor. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he who baptizes with the Spirit. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is he, the Son of God, the one on whom the Spirit descended and stayed. And he can baptize others, not merely as with water, as what John did, but with the Spirit. And this is yet another way in which John the Baptist demonstrates that Jesus is superior to him. Now remember, at this point, it was John and not Jesus who had a large following, so large, in fact, that people were asking him if he was the Christ. But John was very clear, and here we summarize some of what he has testified about Christ to this point. No, I am not the Christ, but the one who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. I am not worthy to untie his sandals. I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. He is the Son of God. And Christ has granted his spirit to his people. And this too was one of the blessings which God had prophesied. Ezekiel 36, 26, God had said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And truly, for all those purchased by Christ, the spirit does come to indwell. This is one of the great blessings of the gospel. If God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then know that Christ has purchased you by his blood. And more than this, he has purchased all of the blessings of the new covenant for you. 
You are forgiven through his blood. You are granted his righteousness, clothed in his righteousness. You have him as your mediator, your advocate in the presence of the Father. You are adopted into the family of God and are made a co-heir with Christ. And you are now indwelt by his own spirit. If you are in Christ, it is because the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born again. It is because he has removed your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, a heart that works. It is because he has placed his spirit within you. And so the Holy Spirit now indwells every true follower of Christ. The Spirit blesses us by convicting us of sin, pointing us to Christ, and giving us new desires. And Scripture shows Christ is the one through whom this blessing was given. Now, as we covered recently, Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 7, that it was to their advantage that he would leave them, for if he left them and returned to his Father, he would then send the Helper to them, the Holy Spirit to them. Now, I know we don't often think of the Holy Spirit as being a blessing given by Christ, but that's exactly what we see here. We then see this promise being fulfilled at Pentecost. After Christ had risen from the dead and ascended to heaven, Acts 2 records how the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples in tongues of fire. And then Peter stood up and gave the explanation of what was going on to all the people. And at the conclusion of his sermon, he says this, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted to, at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So catch that. The outpouring of the Spirit upon the church, Peter says, this was Christ's doing. He received the promise, and now he has poured out that which you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Christ is the one through whom this blessing was given. He is the unique Son of God who reveals to us the Father. He is the one who baptizes with his Spirit. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. He is the source of the blessings. He is the channel of the blessings from God. As Puritan John Owen writes, the love of the Father's purpose and good pleasure arise from and have their foundation in his mere grace and will, yet its accomplishment is only in Christ. All its fruits are first given to him and only in him that they are dispensed to us. Although the saints see an infinite ocean of love 
in the heart of the Father, they are not to look for one drop from him apart from what comes through Christ. He is the only means of communication. Love in the Father is like honey in the flower. It must be in the comb before we can use it. Christ must extract and prepare this honey for us. He draws this water from the fountain through union, and then he dispenses its fullness. And by faith, we draw from the wells of salvation that are in him. So friends, sinners, if there are any here who do not know God, behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I know we've covered some complicated topics this morning, going into some depth on the atonement, but please do not leave here with the wrong impression. While the gospel is gloriously deep, an ocean of which we will spend eternity plumbing its depths, it is also simple enough for a child to understand and receive. Behold the Lamb. Jesus died on the cross for sin. He rose from the dead. He is the Son of God sent to save sinners like you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Confess your need for a Savior and pray that God would forgive you through Christ. While it is gloriously deep, it is also beautifully simple. To those who are in Christ, my brothers and sisters, we too must make the goal of our lives to continually behold the Lamb. Fix your eyes on Christ. Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Seek the things that are above. Meditate on Christ. Reflect on his grace. Let him be your daily meditation. Make it your life's work to behold the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. And as you see Jesus taking away sin, as Matthew Henry writes, let that cause hatred of sin and resolutions against it. Let us not hold that fast, cling to it, that which Christ, the Lamb of God, came to take away. Christ has removed your sins from you, bearing them in his body on the tree. And so do not cling to that which Christ has taken away. Be who you are in Christ, a new creation, baptized in the Holy Spirit. Let us live accordingly. Amen.